All right. Our text this evening is in Matthew chapter number 2. Matthew chapter number 2. And tonight we're going to be dealing with a, a rather short portion of Scripture. Um, and so we'll just allow the time to move as it does. But Matthew chapter 2, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. And we're going to be considering tonight uh, the phrase that's found uh, in verse number 15, which says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. We have already covered over the last few weeks, we have already been dealing with the actual announcement of the birth of Christ. We looked last week at the visit of the Magi's, which when they came uh, to see the uh, newborn king, and we spent much time on that. But this particular expression that's found in verse 15, when we uh, deal with this particular, pa- this particular passage, um, it, it leads us to ask a number of questions. Uh, some of the questions that we are, are confronted with is the idea of uh, why is uh, the Lord being mentioned as being in Egypt? Uh, what is the significance of our Lord going to Egypt? And, and why is uh, God announcing uh, that out of Egypt have I called my son? This is not a random expression. Uh, this is something that was actually prophesied about uh, with the previous uh, prophets who came. Um, when we think about the worship of the Lord and we think about the worship of Christ, um, we certainly see the worship of Christ when the Magi came and they brought the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, but I sometimes think we, we lose sight of uh, the worship that comes uh, even towards Christ uh, through his own persecution. Um, persecution of our Lord throughout, beginning even very young here, all the way through the cross, uh, every time he was persecuted, uh, it brought him more glory. And uh, no matter uh, what man attempted to do to the Lord, he was under the divine protection of his Father. And because he was under the divine protection of his father, uh, even when wicked kings such as Herod uh, would try to put out a decree uh, in order to uh, exterminate him, we find that divine providence uh, was at hand. Now, of course, divine providence also means uh, that God is also providential uh, in allowing these things to take place. Uh, We understand that in verses 13 through 18, uh, this is what's uh, referred to as the flight to Egypt or the, the journey to Egypt. And we know that it's Joseph and Mary who in verse 13 tells us that uh, they were were warned in verse 12 that they should not return to Herod. And so we pick up the story in verse 13. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Uh, Really, there's a lot of ways we could look at this passage tonight. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking the approach this evening of looking at this from the perspective of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, uh, the angel of the Lord, you see, appears to Joseph and he gives him instructions. He gives Joseph the instructions that do not go back to Herod, but I want you rather to go to Egypt. Now, for these, this group, uh, Joseph and Mary and, of course, the young child, uh, Jesus, uh, this is a strange directive. 
to go to a place that was once the place of slavery, that was once the place where the nation of Israel uh, was, was put to hard labor. But yet in the midst of a decree that goes out by Herod, which we're going to learn about tonight, uh, they are warned to go to Egypt. And uh, it shows us much about uh, the character of Joseph, but it also shows us the character of God. It shows us the character of God and how his divine providence uh, is bringing all of these plans together. Uh, nothing's happening by uh, circumstance. Uh, they are happening by the divine hand of God. So even when there was plans of the wicked uh, that were being planned and plotted against Christ, we see that Joseph responds in obedience. Uh, we see in verse 14, uh, it says, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Joseph is given this command, and he immediately, upon his, uh, his arising in the morning, when it's still dark, he gets up and he says, uh, we are going. Um, he, he, is, he, is, he is acting on faith. Uh, and, and Joseph uh, is, is, is walking in obedience. And Joseph kind of gives us this picture of the model of faith. The faith which tells us to do, the faith which tells us to go. And Joseph responds immediately. Now we understand that because this is the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph, uh, this is a providential act of God. Uh, remember the Magi, one of the gifts that they brought was gold. And we talked about this last week, that the gold that was brought was going to be used as some of the ways in which Joseph and Mary were going to be able to take care of themselves. Uh, God had providentially provided the, the Magi to bring uh, the ability to be supported. So they were going to incur uh, expenses uh, in Egypt. Uh, what's amazing is probably uh, when the Magi came and visited, uh, they, Joseph and Mary probably didn't consider uh, the gold. They didn't consider that just a few hours later they were going to be told uh, by the angel of the Lord to go into uh, Egypt. And uh, I think it's a proof to us that God always takes care of his own children. And he certainly is providing here. So we first of all see the obedience of Joseph. Uh, we know that uh, Joseph, because of how everything had taken place, how originally when it was told that his espoused uh, wife, Mary, was going to be with child, uh, he uh, uh, initially was a bit taken back, obviously, which all of us would have been, but he follows in obedience and he, he doesn't uh, make a public example of her. And yet here we see this man who is willingly doing as God had told him. Uh, he, is, he is, in effect, uh, he's a guardian. Uh, he's a guardian of our Lord, and he's a guardian of Mary. Uh, Joseph um, isn't Jesus' father. Um, it, and we understand uh, because of the virgin birth, and yet he's taking care and he's providing uh, by the providential hand of God. So as we see there, uh, the, it tells us that they departed into Egypt in verse 14 and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. They remain there until Herod dies. And when Herod dies, it is then going to be safe for them to return back to Nazareth, which we'll deal with that particular portion of Scripture next week. But we see here that as they're, as they're doing this, all this has taken place. Verse 16 tells us about Herod. 
then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men. Uh, now, what exactly is going on here? What's happening here is, remember, Herod had inquired about the wise men to go and check on this baby and check on this young child and then bring back word where he is. Of course, the Magi did not go back. So this, this enrages Herod. Uh, it enrages him to the point where he is going to put out a... Uh, he puts out a decree uh, for all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So there's a two-year gap that passes here. So Herod's plan is to take out all of these children that are two and under with an attempt to try to remove Jesus. Now, Again, you have Joseph who's humbly leading this family to Egypt. And we see that the Lord is, is going to be called out of Egypt. And the, the way this prophecy is being fulfilled is literally by Jesus and Joseph and Mary being sent to Egypt. So that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Now... When we see this being called out of Egypt, we have to remember that the nation of Israel um, as a nation is referred to as the Son of God or God's Son. Now, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, but there's a prophecy in Hosea chapter 11, verse number 1, um, that talks about God's love towards Israel. And his, his love, it says, when Israel was a child... Then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, Hosea 11.1 1 is referring to the actual nation of Israel in captivity and bondage in Egypt. And yet, when it's mentioned in Matthew, it's a reference to Jesus being called out of Egypt. The, the terminology is the same. I called my son out of Egypt in Hosea 11.1. 1, and then in verse number 15 of Matthew, it's out of Egypt have I called my son. There is this fulfillment of the prophecy. It was true of the nation of Israel as God's son. And now it's true of Jesus himself, the son of God. Uh, Egypt, you know, uh, I think we know throughout scripture, uh, Egypt is a, a picture or a type of sin. And all of us that have been uh, called unto Christ, uh, in a sense, uh, have been called out of sin. Uh, we've been called out of sin and we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ. Uh, we are brought out of Egypt. Uh, we are brought out with His mighty hand. Uh, and it's in that day... Uh, when God delivers us from our sin. So we see a lot happening here. Uh, we see this, this rage of Herod. Uh, Herod as he feels as if he's mocked. Now think about this. Uh, Egypt tried to destroy the people of God. Uh, Babylon tries to destroy the people of God. Uh, ultimately, the Roman government tries to destroy the people of God, along with Christ. And yet out of all of those dangers and out of all of those afflictions and out of all of those persecutions, this announcement of out of Egypt have I called my son. 
It is something that God is providentially promising that his child, his son, will forever be. Um, It would be easier. uh, I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, it is easier to restrain the sun from rising than to hold the redeemed of the Lord in perpetual servitude. Who shall block up their road? God is still calling them out, and until the last of his elect are gathered in, it will stand true out of Egypt and out of anywhere else that is like Egypt, out of the worst and vilest places, out of the places where they are held fast in bitter bondage, out of these I called my son. So we see these promises that God has made, and yet we see the rage we see the, the mocking that Herod feels that these wise men have, have uh, done him wrong. And so we see that all of these things and what takes place next is one of the things of God's providential hand that, quite frankly, uh, we, we, we sit back and we say, how could God have been involved in this? Because what happens is that it tells us in verse 17 then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. And what has taken place here is this decree of all those children, two years old and under, being slaughtered innocently, does in fact take place. There is this decree that goes out, and uh, Herod is considered to be exceedingly wroth. And when his his wrath and his anger is terrible. He slays these children. He sends out this decree. Every child two years old and younger. And yet he indiscriminately just simply says they all need to be removed. Now, the, the, the word Jeremy that is mentioned there, that is the translation of the Greek form of the word Jeremiah. He is referring back to a prophecy that Jeremiah made in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. If you'd like to turn there, you can do so. But Jeremiah 31, 15, this was a prophet uh, that, of course, he's known as the weeping prophet. And he speaks about this weeping that's going to take place. In Jeremiah 31, 15, Thus saith the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, and bitter weeping. Rahel, or that's Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And you'll notice that in verse 18 of Matthew 2, it says, In Ramah, there was there a voice heard, lamentation, and weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. The reference to Rachel and the reference to the weeping is the reference to the innocent slaughter of these children. Now, oftentimes when we see things in Scripture like this, um, we are tempted to begin to ask the question, is God righteous in his actions? Is God correct in his actions? And God is always correct. And yet, we see something here that makes us stand back and say, how is God in this? How is God in allowing the innocent slaughter of these children? Um, 
It is one of those difficult things when we see how God works and how God's plans. Um, Herod ultimately misses the mark. He doesn't, his plan does not come anywhere near Christ. But there are children that are uh, in, their, uh, in their infancy, uh, they are taken. That's the weeping, that's the mourning. Um, you're seeing the rage of a very angry king, Herod. Um, you're seeing a man who is so threatened that he's going to lose his throne that he's willing to indiscriminately take out every child that's two years old and younger with an attempt to take out the Christ. And in the, in the time frame that this is happening, Herod has no concern about the other children. He has no concern about the children that are being slain, but yet God in his providential dealings um, spares his son. Um, I really got... Uh, to be honest with you, I, 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 this, this text bothers me just in my humanity. Um, just being honest, it, 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 I understand the faith of God. I understand that we trust God and His providence. But from a human perspective, it bothers us. It bothers us because we see something that appears to be uh, so, so awful. Um, and yet, when you begin to, to think about this and you begin to look at it, um, I, I came across uh, a quote from Matthew Henry about this. Um, and the, the first time I read it, I was, I was taken back by it. Um, but then as I thought about it, I, I thought, he's speaking of what divine providence really looks like. It says that, he said that Herod killed all the male children, not only in Bethlehem, but in all the villages of that city. Unbridled wrath, armed with an unlawful power, often carries men to absurd cruelties. It was no unrighteous thing with God to permit this. Every life is forfeited to his justice as soon as it begins. The diseases and deaths of little children are proofs of original sin. But the murder of these infants was their martyrdom. How early did persecution against Christ and his kingdom begin? Herod now thought that he had baffled the Old Testament prophecies and the efforts of the wise men in finding Christ. But whatever crafty, cruel devices are in men's hearts, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. And as you read that quote and you think about that quote, uh, Henry, Matthew Henry is really pointing to the reality of not how, how, how sorrowful of a day that that would have been in Bethlehem. Um, and obviously the weeping and the lamentation in the morning and Rachel weeping for her children. But then you have Herod. You have Herod who is uh, trying to, to take out Christ. He's trying to take him out. And um, he's, he's, we see how early the persecution of Jesus Christ and his church began. Oftentimes, we make the mistake that the persecution of Christ didn't begin until year 33 and a half or so, or maybe a few years before that, when he first started public ministry. But the reality is the very persecution of Christ started the very day of his incarnation. 
The very birth of Christ that we talk about and the very birth of Christ that we think about this time of year, his persecution began. Why? Because there's always been a rage against Christ. And there will always be a rage against Christ. When we understand that Jesus himself would later tell his disciples that the world is going to hate you because of me. The world is going to despise you because of me. Every step of the Lord was paved with a fulfillment of a prophecy. None of his actions were random. None of the things that he was doing were things that were um, against the providential hand of God. Yet, we see that he stepped along with all these prophecies and people like Joseph and Mary who were uh, called upon to carry out God's providential leanings and his dealings. Um, the Lord's way has always been filled with trouble. His way has always been filled with difficulty. But until the appointed time of his time to go to the cross, he was fully 100% protected under the divine providential hand of God. And no king, Herod included, was going to prevent his fulfillment of that ultimate prophecy of coming and dying for the sins of his people. We often think about in our, our day and age today, we think about those around the world who are suffering persecution. Um, we take this week and uh, we think about the birth of Christ, and yet there are people that from the very time of their birth in parts of this world have never known what it is to actually live in freedom. They've been persecuted for their faith from the very get-go. They, they don't even know what it is to have the freedom to worship without being under the rage or persecution of a ruler or a king of some sort. I think, and I think the Bible would play this out, that Herod really thought his plan would work. I think he assumed that that plan would take out the Christ. But yet, no matter how great the effort was to try to remove the Christ, we understand that God's hand of protection was upon him. Again, we go back to this expression out of Egypt, have I called my son? Egypt, of course, had been a house of slavery to Israel. It had been particularly cruel to the infants of Israel. We read that in Exodus chapter number 1. Yet for Christ, at this moment in history, it was to be a place of refuge. Egypt, the most unlikely place, becomes the place of refuge for Christ. Whenever God pleases by His divine hand of protection, whenever He pleases... He can make the worst of places serve the best of His purposes. Whether it's in Egypt, whether it's in a place today that's under severe persecution, there are people who are in the trial of their faith and the trial of their life right now. Joseph and Mary's faith was being tested. And yet, their faith, once it was tried, was found to be firm, it was found to be secure, and upon the very appointed hour, as we read, God would call his son out of Egypt. 
And it would be in much the very same manner in which he delivered Israel from Egypt. When God determined it was time to remove the nation of Israel out of Egypt, there was nothing that was going to hinder them. Pharaoh tried to hinder them. Pharaoh tried to stop them. But they couldn't be stopped. God delivered them by using a man by the name of Moses. Tonight, brief. But I think important, especially when we consider all that the prophecies that are being fulfilled. The prophecies of God and his providential dealings with man. Out of Egypt. Out of an unlikely place. We could go back and we could talk about how Jesus would be born in, in his humility. He would be born in a lowly place. He did not come to this earth in pomp and circumstance. He didn't come in, in all, the, the, all the glory that would come with a coming king. And yet, when he arrives, he arrives and from the minute of his incarnation, he is, he is persecuted. I think that for, for us tonight, as we think about and have thought about over the last couple of weeks, we've thought about the birth of Christ. If we're writing the story, we don't write the story this way. Uh, we don't write the story, I don't think, even from the very beginning. But we're thankful that it's God's providence that's writing the story. It's God's ordaining that's writing the story. Even though... Our Lord was filled with trials and troubles and afflictions. The hand of his father was upon him. We began by considering Joseph. Joseph goes down in biblical history as uh, not anything that would call himself a hero. We looked at, and even in the genealogy in the very first chapter of Matthew, he's part of the royal lineage. He's part of the royal line. And yet Joseph, in simple obedience takes this family that was put together by God and simply obeys and takes this child to Egypt. A simple act of obedience that ended in being clearly a part of God's providential doings. So tonight, as we think about these things and think about these truths, think about the faith of Joseph. Think about the faith that we're called to. Uh, God might put uh, his people uh, in situations where faith is certainly going to be tried. And Joseph certainly lived up to the faith and the test that was put before him. I want to finish tonight with our reading from the Valley of Vision. I told you we'd be very brief tonight. And I want us to think on these truths as we leave here in just a moment. We're on page 372 of the Valley of Vision, and this is entitled Heaven Desired. And I think there'll be some, some common references here that uh, will remind us of what we studied tonight. It says, O oh my Lord, may I arrive where means of grace cease, and I need no more to fast, pray, weep, and watch. Be tempted, attend preaching and sacrament where nothing defiles, where is no grief, sorrow, sin, or death, separation, tears, pale face, languid body, aching joints, feeble infancy, decrepit age, humors, pining sickness, gripping fears, consuming cares. Where is personal completeness, where the more perfect the sight, the more beautiful the object, the more perfect the appetite, the sweeter the food, 
the more musical the ear, the more pleasant the melody. The more complete the soul, the more happy its joys, where is full knowledge of thee. Here I am an ant, and as I view a nest of ants, so dost thou view me and my fellow creatures. But as an ant knows not me, my nature, my thoughts, so here I cannot know thee clearly. But there I shall be near thee, dwell with my family, stand in thy presence chamber, be an heir of thy kingdom as the spouse of Christ, as a member of his body, one with him who is with thee, and exercise all my powers of body and soul in the enjoyment of thee. As praise in the mouth of thy saints is comely, so teach me to exercise this divine gift. When I pray, read, hear, see, and do in the presence of people and of my enemies, as I hope to praise thee eternally hereafter. Let's go ahead and stand tonight and we'll be dismissed. Again, I know we've been brief this evening, but I trust that it'll be an encouragement to you today and an encouragement to you as we uh, think on these truths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, I pray that as we consider our Savior, we consider our salvation, we consider what's the ultimate price that was paid for us, that Jesus Christ, who was born and took on this robe of human flesh, from the moment of his incarnation, he would suffer persecution, but he would fulfill the work that you called him to do. By the divine protection of your hand, he would live his life in perfect obedience. And he would one day go to the cross and give his life a ransom for many. Lord, those of us tonight that know Christ as our Savior, we are certainly grateful for Jesus Christ and his, his coming to this earth to die in our place for our sin. Father, I pray that tonight, that if there be anyone here tonight in this building or someone who may be listening by live stream at this very moment, that tonight, that under the power of the Holy Spirit, their eyes would be opened, their ears would be made willing to receive and to hear, their heart would be softened to receive the gospel, that they would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, thank you for this gift of salvation. And may Christ truly be magnified and glorified in our lives. And it's for Christ's sake and for his glory that we do pray and ask these things. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here tonight.